Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. Are we ready? Okay, let's be clear. The Big Ten was horrible yesterday. 0-5, for those of you who care. How many care about how the Big Ten did? Okay, maybe 5% of our, of our gathering. And that's enough. That's enough. All right, so grab a Bible. We are uh, in the book of Matthew. We're going to start in the book of Psalms. Now, let me tell you how this is going to go if you're new to our community. We're going to end up in the book of Matthew, but we're going to go to one, two, three, four, five Old Testament passages first. They're going to seem disconnected. If you're new to the Bible, you're going to say, I'm not quite sure how this is going to help me lose weight or like fulfill my New Year's resolutions. Relevance is usually 20 minutes out from this point forward. And so we're going to do a lot of background. Then we're going to go to the Matthew text. We're going to pick that apart. And then ultimately, we're going to ask the question, how does that intersect our lives thousands of years later? We understand the Bible to be one story. Although it's many books, although it spans thousands of years, it's one essential story. And Jesus of Nazareth didn't just drop into human history out of nowhere. And when you look at the, there are four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of them has a theological agenda in their writing. Matthew's agenda. Matthew is Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. I don't know if that's news to anybody. Matthew is writing about a Jewish Messiah as a Jewish person to other Jewish people. So his big agenda is to show how this Jesus fulfills all of the promises of the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. So we're going to look at a bunch of those promises and then land in Matthew. So let's go to Psalm chapter 2. We'll start in verse 7. Nope, we'll start in verse 1. I was just kidding. Psalm chapter 2, if you don't know where that is or how to find it, we'll put it up on the screen for you too. We invite you though to bring uh, the Bible to dive in. Read it for yourself. Now, Psalms are songs. Hello, young lady. Are you waving at me? Were you waving or just kind of holding your hand up? Because I'm waving back. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm impressed. She's quiet. She seems attentive. She seems more awake, frankly, than some of the adults around her. Uh, Psalm chapter 2. Now, this was early on considered to be a messianic psalm. If that word messianic trips you up. Uh, Very early in the Bible, there was the promise of one who would come to put the world back together to the way God intended it to be. The first part of the the Christian story is that God created the world and it was good. Second part of the Christian story is that, that through rebellion, sin and death, corruption, evil, all of that entered the world and God moves to start putting it back together. And very early in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, there, there are these promises of one who will be sent by God who will come and rescue, redeem, and restore all that God has made. And, you, and, and there are varying degrees of specificity. Some of them are very, very specific, like the Messiah will be born in Matthew. Others, like the one we're going to read now, are just about the kind of relationship this anointed one will have with God. So Psalm chapter 2, we'll start in verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord. Now, anytime you see capital L-O-R-D in all caps, that is God's name, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. So we're talking about God. 
Why uh, do all the rulers, uh, kings of the earth, take their stand and gather together against the Lord and his what? Anointed one. Notice how that's capitalized. Anointed one in Hebrew is the word Messiah. In Greek, it's translated Christ. So Jesus Christ is Jesus Messiah. That's not his last name, as we always say. Right? And his middle initial certainly is an H. I don't know where people get that. No, 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 sorry. If you're new, sorry. The better speaker will be here next week. Um, so, so the anointed one. So you read about God and you read about his anointed one. Okay? Now, the, the scripture continues. Let us break their chains, they say, throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them, he rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, Jerusalem, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Now, this is, this is tough sledding to kind of understand what's going on. Here's the major takeaway. There's God and there's this anointed one. And the anointed one who will come will be a king who will have some sort of father-son relationship with God. God will say to this king, um, you are my son. And this king will say to God, right, you are my father. There's some sort of father-son thing. And it's not specific. It's just kind of general. But this was one of the promises given very early about what this anointed one, this Messiah, would be like. Go, if you would, to Isaiah. Flip over to the right. Go to Isaiah chapter 40. Now, for those of you keeping score at home, Isaiah is split into two parts. Chapters 1 through 39 are called 1st Isaiah. Chapters uh, 40 through 66 are called 2nd Isaiah. 1st Isaiah has to do with judgment over Israel and uh, the nation surrounding it. The second part of Isaiah, from 40 on, has to do with God's promise to restore his people. Now, one of, the, one of the predominant things that happened to Israel is that very early in the biblical story, Israel finds themselves enslaved to Egypt. God delivers them in something called the Exodus, right? The Exodus out of slavery and into freedom, out of Egypt and into a promised land, Isaiah 40 through 66 concerns something called the second exodus, where the nation of Israel has been so rebellious and disobedient, she is now scattered all throughout the ancient Near East, and the prophet Isaiah, after chapters of judgment, now speaks of a time when God will regather his people, send this Messiah, and restore Israel. Okay, so that's the context if you're following along. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. It's literally, the change in tone here is really abrupt from chapter 39 to chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice of one calling, in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. In other words, the prophet is announcing comfort to the nation and there will be one who will come before God returns to his people 
who will actually prepare the way. There, so, so you have God, you have this anointed one, and now we read about a preparer, somebody who will come ahead of time. And the, and the metaphor that's used in this passage is of somebody plowing a road through wilderness so that a king can follow. Are you tracking with this, kind of? Very marginal participation. Go, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 42. So we've got three people. We've got God which, you know, is assumed. And then you read about this anointed one who will have this father-son relationship. Then you read about this preparer. Now, this is a passage about this anointed one. All of this is necessary to understand where we're going in Matthew. Isaiah 42, we meet somebody called the servant of the Lord. Here is my servant, verse 1, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nation. So this anointed one will receive God's spirit and have a father-son relationship with God. Go, if you would, to the book of Malachi. If you don't know where that is, go to the end of the Old Testament. It's the last book in the Hebrew Scriptures. If you don't know where that is, go to the beginning of the New Testament and turn left. I think that's funny. I really do. And obviously, I'm alone in that belief. Now, I'm trying to make this relatively painless, but here's the deal. There is so much in the New Testament that is fulfillment of the Old Testament. I feel it necessary to go into these passages, even though they seem disconnected and tough, so that when we hit the New Testament stuff, you're going, oh, okay, 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 okay. Because Matthew's agenda is to show you this is one big story, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was promised and pointed to in the Old Testament. So he's got a clear agenda, and we've got to follow his agenda for this stuff. In Malachi, or if you're Italian, what do you call him? Malachi, the Italian prophet, right? That's a very old seminary joke. It's what you do in seminary is you... Forget it. Um, And you pay lots of money. Uh, You have to understand... When you go from Malachi 4 and flip the page, 400 years of human history go by. The end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, that one page in our English Bible is 400 years. And it's 400 years of silence. In fact, the rabbis of the first century had a term for this 400 years. Bat-quol, which, was, which meant daughters of the voice. It meant that God wasn't speaking directly to his people anymore. And all the rabbis could do was interpret what was already written. They couldn't add to what was written because God wasn't speaking authoritatively. So that 400 years of history is very, very important in the biblical story. And what Malachi has to say is critical because it, it's the last authoritative word these folks have leading into 400 years. Make sense? So Malachi chapter 3. We have God, we have the anointed one, and then we have a preparer. Now, these are passages about the preparer. See, verse 1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. This is God speaking, saying, I'm going to send somebody ahead of time who will prepare the way. It's exactly what Isaiah said too. Go if you would to Malachi chapter 4. And this is, these are the last two verses of the Old Testament. God speaking again, verse uh, 5, Malachi 4, 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah. If you know your Old Testament, Elijah was the paradigm prophet. 
of the Old Testament. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of God's return comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. In other words, they will, he will bring the whole nation back to repentance and worship of the one true God or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And then it ends. And 400 years of silence. So to the Jewish mind of the time, there was rampant expectancy because God had been silent, but he promised that he would come and before his coming, he would send one who would prepare the way for his coming. Are you with me on this so far? Flip the page. 400 years later. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 1, the birth of the baby Jesus. Matthew 2, Jesus uh, and his family flee to Egypt and come back. And then in Matthew 3, 3, we read about somebody called John the Baptist. And the Baptist wasn't John's last name. It describes, it describes his function. So you can literally say he's the baptizer because he was baptizing people. And if the word baptism or baptized throws you, it just means bapti- to baptize somebody means to immerse them. The word literally means to immerse. Now, with that, all of that in view, are you ready for Matthew? I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> then you and I shall go together. In those days, verse 1, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, we're going to go painstakingly through this line by line. If you're thinking, oh, you're going to call this painstaking? What do you call the other stuff? Relevance is 10 minutes. When you read about anything happening in the first century, in the wilderness, or in the desert, you should know that the wilderness is a highly powerful and symbolic place to the Jewish mind. God gives his people the law in the wilderness. He tests them for 40 years in the wilderness. The wilderness is a place of God's voice speaking, God visiting his people, or of God's people being tested by him. The wilderness is a highly symbolic place. So if God's going to speak now for the first time in 400 years, it is fully appropriate that it would be in the wilderness, in the desert. So John the Baptist comes in the desert, and he's preaching this, and it's, we're given a one-sentence summary of what he was preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now let's spend just a little time on what this is. The word repentance is, is a Bible word that means I'm going this direction, and to repent means I'm going the opposite direction. To repent doesn't mean to just, hey, you're sinning, stop it. It means you're heading this way, and you flip around and head the opposite direction. So, lust is your issue. It's not repent, which just means quit lusting. It means turn away from lust and grab purity. Turn away from greed and grab generosity. Turn away from pride and grab humility. It's, it's not just turning from something, it's turning to something. Repentance is a lost art in the American church because we think in the American church all that's required is for us just to say, yep, you're right, I'm sorry. And that's called confession. Confession is when we go before God and say, yep, you're right. That was totally wrong, that was sin. Repentance is when by his, under his grace, so we're not doing it to earn or prove, 
by his power, we're not doing it on our own, we turn away and embrace something different. So I'll have uh, guys, hypothetically, looking at things they shouldn't on the internet, and they'll be sorry, and you'll say, okay, well, where's your computer? Well, it's right next to my bed. Do you have any password or accountability software? Nope. Confession is just saying, hey, it's a real bummer that I struggle with this. Repentance is taking the computer out of your bedroom and putting it in a, in, a, in a place and putting stuff on it and actually protecting yourself from it. Make sense? I'm just using a hypothetical example that none of us would struggle with at all. <laughs> they laugh nervously. Um, right? So, so repentance is literally reorient your whole life. Right? Change the direction you're headed. Now, notice, who is John talking to? Now, somebody said Jesus. Now, you have to understand, in church, that is almost always the right answer. (laughs) Except this time. So if you're going to make a mistake, mistake with Jesus. John, Jesus will show up shortly, and they'll have a conversation. And then I will ask, who's he talking to? And you will say, yes. But until that point... John is talking to the nation of Israel. He's talking to God's chosen people. Now, isn't it fascinating that when God decides to visit, he goes to his people and calls them to repent? In other words, he didn't go to Vegas and call the pagans to repent. He didn't didn't go to all of the cultures that worshiped false gods and calls them to repent. He goes to God's people and says repent. That becomes highly, highly important. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Two seconds on the kingdom of heaven. For those of you keeping track, if you're totally lost, I promise it will get better. The kingdom of heaven is equivalent to the kingdom of God. Matthew is Jewish, and so he doesn't use God's name. Right? They just didn't. They stopped using it after a while. So he uses kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, and John uses the phrase eternal life, are all talking about the same thing in the Gospels. When Jesus says, and he'll say this too, John says it, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is near. He's not talking about you going to heaven when you die. He's talking about the reign and rule and the goodness of heaven coming close to you. That's what he's talking about. Now, it includes going to heaven when you die, but it's bigger than that. So what he's saying is that God's reign and rule and governance is drawing close to you. When Jesus teaches his followers how to pray, he says, pray like this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come and your will being done are the same thing. So God's kingdom is the place where his will is done. So his kingdom was drawing near to these first century people in the person of Jesus. I know that's horribly confusing. But I want you to understand it's much different than just believe in Jesus and get a ticket to heaven. The message of Jesus wasn't believe in me and get a ticket to heaven. The message of Jesus was believe in me. Because in me, the governance, the reign, the goodness, the power, the wholeness, the shalom, the peace of God is yours without intermediaries. And we looked at this all last fall. 
The announcement isn't that we work our way up. It's that God draws near. So he's looking at the people of God, John is, and he's saying, turn from how you've been living. In fact, in Hebrew, the word repent means return home. The picture is you've lost your way, so come back. You've gotten off track, return. That's the picture. He says this to the people of God, repent, for God is drawing near to you now in this person of Jesus. I'm working. I don't know about you guys. This is thick stuff. Now, and it's hot in here. Can we agree? In case you've missed what was obvious, Matthew says, this John is the one who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So Isaiah and Malachi talk about the preparer. This is the preparer. In fact, Jesus later uh, in the book of Matthew calls John Elijah, right? This is the Elijah. So this was electric stuff in the first century. If God hasn't spoken for 400 years, and now you hear in the wilderness, there's this one who's speaking with authority, you go, ooh. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. The reason all that's important is because it, if you go back and read the description of Elijah, it's very similar. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Okay, give me five more minutes. This is a huge deal. People flocked to him because he was speaking with an authority that hadn't been heard in Israel for 400 years, number one. Number two, he was immersing or baptizing people in the Jordan River. If you know Old Testament, Jordan River is the river that delineated the promised land from not the promised land. It was the fulfillment of the exodus as the people entered into the promised land out of slavery. And now John is baptizing them again in the Jordan River. Baptism was something Jewish folks didn't do. They had all sorts of ceremonial washings and cleansings and all kind of crazy stuff, but none of them were baptized. The only people who were baptized in Israel were non-Jewish folks being baptized into Israel. So you have to understand, this is highly offensive to Jewish folks to have John announcing the kingdom is near and you must be baptized. To Jewish folks, they're going, hey, but we're Jewish folks. Non-Jewish folks have to be baptized into us. Why do we have to be baptized? Are you tracking? Will this help you get married this year? It will. <laughs> but when, verse 7, John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, these are the religious leaders of Israel, John has a very warm and inviting welcome to them. He said to them, you brood of vipers, children of snakes, in other words. You think that's a compliment? Not so much. You children of snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, don't just show up because you think you have to and do some hypocritical baptism. Like, mean it. Now, this is the key line. We have a little more pain to go, and then we'll get to why it matters. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. 
The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Does that sound good to you? So he looks at the religious leaders and he says, all right, I got good news and bad news. Good news, Messiah's coming. Bad news, your Jewishness is no longer sufficient to guarantee your participation in what God's about to do. You have to understand what he's saying. He looks at the Jewish population and he says, you've lost your way, repent. How do we repent? Be baptized. But we don't get baptized. We're children of Abraham. To say you're a child of Abraham means that you are of Abraham's line, which he's the father of the nation of Israel, so you're an Israelite, you're Jewish. John says, don't look at me and say, hey, we've got Abraham as our father, because God's big enough that he can make children out of Abraham out of anything. Now, you have to understand what John's just done. It's almost like he's excommunicated the nation of Israel and says, if you want back in, you've got to go be baptized in preparation for the coming Messiah. This was highly ridiculous to their ears. Now, then Jesus shows up. Go ahead, jump down to verse 13. John speaks of this coming one who will baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then Jesus shows up, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? In other words, dude, I've just been telling everybody, you're like the big one, and why would you come and be baptized when everyone's being baptized because they've sinned? You haven't sinned is the obvious implication. Jesus says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus allows himself to be baptized by John to identify himself with the nation of Israel, to validate John's mission, and ultimately to fulfill it. To simply say, all that John was doing in preparation has now been brought to a close because Messiah is here. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And not that you care, but in the Greek language, was opened is about the lamest translation ever because it's literally violently ripped open. The heavens were split apart. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Now, if you remember Isaiah 42, what's God say about the anointed one to come? I will put my Spirit on him Okay, so if you've got your Jewish ears on, this is like, ooh, this is all fulfillment. At that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son. Where did we read about a son and a father recently? Isaiah is not correct, but I... Psalm chapter 2. Thanks for playing. <laughs> Psalm chapter 2, right? This anointed king will come and I will say you are my son and he will say I am your father, right? Remember that? Okay, so in one short little sentence you have Psalm chapter 2. This is my son. Notice the next phrase. Whom I love. This phrase comes from Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is a place where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And twice in Hebrew it says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. 
That was foreshadowing of what God would do with Christ. So take your son, Psalm chapter 2, your only son, Genesis 22. Oh, he says, uh, take your, this is my son whom I love. That's Genesis 22. With him I am well pleased. That is Isaiah. Who said Isaiah? Say it with pride now. Where does this come from? Isaiah chapter 42. The servant I delight in. All right, now, you're completely lost and you're wondering why this matters. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew is determined to show us this Jesus is the fulfillment of all sorts of Old Testament promise. So, he records for us this preparer who's the fulfillment of both Malachi passages and an Isaiah passage. And he has this interaction between the preparer and the Messiah. And the Messiah says to the preparer, your work is done, I will be baptized by you to seal your ministry. And as Messiah is baptized, the Spirit comes down, right? That's Isaiah 42. And then you read in one short sentence the identity and the purpose of this Jesus. This is my son, Psalm chapter 2. He's a king that has a son-father relationship with God. Genesis 22, he will be sacrificed. This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Isaiah 42, the servant of the Lord who will bring justice to the nations. Now, the reason this matters, two big points, all right? Big point number one. Big point number one, the reason we spend time in the Old Testament is because there is this thing out there in American Christianity that says, this book is for me. I go into this book to become a better father or mother, to be a better husband or wife, to, to find principles to run a successful business. I come to this book for devotional and inspirational nuggets. And I just want to tell you, that's exactly the wrong way to come to this book. This book isn't a story about us. This is a story about God. This is a story about God from beginning to end. It starts with, in the beginning, God as he creates, and I wasn't doing much that day, and it ends with God dwelling among his people in a new heavens and a new earth. It's his story. There is this thing in American Christianity that makes the whole story about me. How God can make me better. How God can help me with my problems. How God can do all of this stuff for me. And while he does that, that's not the point of the story. He's not a motivational speaker. He's not a life coach. He's not up there saying, hey, I'm a life enhancer. He doesn't come to us that way. He comes to us as the one who in the most epic way imaginable is putting the world back together and he's looking for cooperative participants that he can start with first who then become agents of renewal as they themselves are renewed. I'm a, I am a narcissist at, my, at the core of my heart. The world, I think, exists for me, right? All my Facebook friends want to know my status, all my Twitter followers are dying to know where I've just checked in for Foursquare. Everybody, everybody wants to know my littlest thoughts. And the, of course, it sounds so absurd, but I literally walk around in my life thinking the whole deal is for me. God exists for me. So I rummage through this looking for inspiration. I rummage through this looking for answers. I rummage through this looking for principles and techniques. And it's got that in there. But it's fundamentally so not a story about me. And it's not about me. It's not for me. And it's not to me. It's about him. 
And salvation isn't me trying to cram this big God into my life. Salvation is my life being found in the big epic story of God. And that fundamental flip makes all the difference in the world. Because if you go around saying, okay, God, I got all this stuff to do, so would you bless my agenda? He may do that. He's so great. He could do that. But you'll never live or experience what you read and hear that way. Because what God is asking from his people isn't just a few minor tweaks. It's the abandonment of all you could do by yourself to embrace what all he wants to do in and through you. It's such a bigger deal. And American Christianity so minimizes and shrinks this. I'm American and I'm a Christian, so I can critique American Christianity because I'm part of the problem. But the reason we would start with these crazy Old Testament passages and go through a passage where you'd go, there's no obvious application to my life. The reason we do it, not only to remind ourselves this is the Messiah that was promised, but to also remind ourselves this is one big story and the story isn't about me. I need to be reminded of that. I don't know about you. I'm in desperate need of being reoriented around the fact that God is at work in human history to draw out a people for himself. And I am utterly privileged to get to be a small part. And that's it. The other big point number two. The other thing this passage does, for me anyway, is it conveys a sense of urgency. When John, If John the Baptist were going to show up today, who would he show up to? The pagans? Nope, he'd show up to the people of God. And you know what he'd say to the people of God? Repent. You've lost your way. I don't know about you. I can say with utter assurance that I've lost my way. And one of the ways I've lost my way is that I, there, I don't like New Year's like messages like, hey, it's a new year, so let's all like, you know, resolve to be better this year. I can't stand that stuff. But there is something powerful about setting aside one year and entering into another one. Looking back and looking forward, there's something powerful in that exercise. And one of the things is I've been doing that, that this passage has been kind of used in my life to convict me about, is the lack of urgency in how I live. In other words, I, I spend much of my life on things that are utterly unimportant and assume I'll get to the important stuff tomorrow. And there was a passage that came to mind, if James, or excuse me, if John were going to come and say, repent, for the kingdom is near you. And he'd say it to the people of God before he'd say it to everybody else. The natural question for me was, well, where would he call me to repent? And then he brought uh, James 4 to mind. So go ahead and flip there. We'll end with this. I hate this passage. Hate it. Hate it. Is that, can I say that? Is that wrong? Hate's a strong word? All right, I despise it. Am I the only one that reads parts of the Bible and wishes they weren't in there? Am I the only one? So this is one of those parts. And the parts that I don't like are the parts that I need most, is how it ends up working out. Verse 13. Now listen, you who say... 
Today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Now listen to anybody who has plans for the future. All right, so all of us. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Think about that for a second. Is there any guarantee I will finish this message? Some of you are wishing desperately there were a guarantee. <laughs> but there isn't one. Right? I mean, as, as remarkably technologically advanced we are, and as, 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 as much control as we think we have over our lives, there is no guarantee we'll walk out of this place. None. You could get a phone call tonight that will change your life forever. You could hear about a family member. You could get a diagnosis. You could get great news that will change your life. You have no control over that. There is nothing that guarantees your heart will not stop beating tonight while you sleep. Not one thing. And you can't do anything about it. Not one thing. So you, we, there is this, it's not having plans that's at issue here. It's the underlying arrogance of finite creatures that what they have now will exist forever. John the Baptist showed up in my house and said, repent. Number one issue that would need to be addressed is the fact that I am so casual about the things of God because I just have all the time in the world. I'm very young. And everybody said, amen. Now I'm not Ethan Young. Now that's, that's almost too young. That's almost embryonic. <laughs> he goes on. He says, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. And then here's like sucker punch number two. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live to do this or that. As it is, you boast and you brag, and all such boasting is evil. Again, the issue isn't having plans. The issue is, as you sit at the beginning of how we calendar a year, God doesn't operate according to our time frame. It's not like, well, I wanted to make sure 2010 was a bummer, but man, I'm really going to bless you in 2011. He's not up there keeping score that way. But there's something that happens to us when we flip the page in a calendar. And if the baptizer were running around the church of Jesus today, he'd be saying, repent. The kingdom's right next to you. You've lost your way. And for me, repentance would look like realizing fundamentally that life is a mist, a vapor. Here's how it's described in the Bible. A breath, a mist, a vapor, a shadow, and grass that is green in the morning and then is brown by the afternoon. There's your life. How many of you have said the phrase, I can't believe it's blank already? Christmas already. February already. January already. Right? I mean, could, older folks, which is anyone older than him. Does it get fast as you get older? Does it go faster? I can't tell you how many folks I talk to who say, who have grown-up kids who look at my little kids at seven, five, and two and say, my kids were just that age. And they just grow up like that. Biblically, there is this sense, breath, mist, vapor. Combine that with, you don't even know what will happen. 
there's no guarantee you'll even be here this time next year. So he goes after the arrogance of finite human beings that think we've got all the time in the world to get right, to get serious, to get reconciled. There's an urgency to the Baptist that I want for me. So what we thought we'd do uh, this morning is take communion. And if you are a follower of Jesus, this is a way of receiving him yet again. If you are not a follower of Jesus, become one. He's awesome. We're all following somebody, so he's your best bet. Um, As the, the profound emotional appeals, as profound emotional appeals go, that was awful. Um, <laughs> but we felt like it was so important for the people of God to meet on a day like today, at the beginning of this year, to be reoriented to the things that matter most and to say to Jesus in very tangible ways, we receive you again. We declare you Lord again. We declare you good again. We declare you holy again. Now, he doesn't need these reminders. We do. We're the forgetful people. So we're going to celebrate communion. The way we do that is there are trays of juice and trays of bread. You pick up some bread. You pick up a cup of juice. If you're new to the church, new to our church, just not comfortable for any reason, go ahead and let those go right back or right past you. No one will care. I want to prepare us, though, a little bit before we celebrate. So would you do this? Would you close your eyes? For some of you, maybe that's, that's easy because it's been happening for the last half hour. <laughs> and I just want to ask some questions. Do with these whatever you will. Out of the James passage, what are the assumptions about this year that just need to be let go of? What are the fears, the worries that God simply might say, let go of those things? What are the sins, the habits, the areas in your life where you've just grown grown so casual and comfortable with them? Maybe just some confession. Or if John the Baptist were here and he said, repent, come back, come home, what would that look like for you? you? Where have you gone astray? And we're people who just want to be honest with God. There's no need to pretend or hide. And just bring your real life before him and invite him in again. Repent of our arrogance and assuming we'll be around forever and ask him for single-mindedness or focus or passion to live for what matters most. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.